Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 19th of December, and this is Govindra Jethi Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Before we start, you can join this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube, among other streaming platforms, at 6 a.m. weekdays in India, 8:30 a.m. in Singapore, and 7:30 p.m. the previous evening in New York City. Our top stories and themes for the day in a trend reversal. Foreign institutional investors pump in five billion dollars in December already. Gold looks very promising. Suddenly, should you be investing in it? High costs and delays stare at Indian shippers as violence grips the Suez Canal. High passenger load factors will drive higher profits for Indian airlines. Elsewhere, Ryanair's CEO lines up for a hundred million pound bonus. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Markets pause and oil rises. Even the greatest mountain climbers pause for breath, as must the Sensex and the Nifty, as it did yesterday. After all, the indices had gained for seven straight weeks. The BSE Sensex closed at seventy-one thousand three hundred and fifteen, down one hundred and sixty-nine points, while the Nifty Fifty ended at twenty-one thousand four hundred and nineteen. Down thirty-eight points, but look at the bright side. The Nifty and the Sensex have gained about six and a half percent so far this month, and are set for their best monthly performance in twenty twenty-three. With the Nifty closing at a record high in nine of the previous eleven sessions, as Reuters has pointed out. So both domestic and global factors are presently looking good, including, of course, foreign flows. FII's hit five billion dollars already. Speaking of foreign flows, foreign portfolio investors were major buyers or have been major buyers in Indian stocks in the first half of December, making the highest ever purchases in a fortnight. Data from the National Securities Depository showed, and as the Economic Times reported, the foreign portfolio investors were worth about five point one five billion dollars in the first half of December, and was close to purchases made in all of July this year, and could reach the highest level since August twenty two, if that trend holds for the rest of the month. According to the Economic Times, foreign portfolio investors had turned net buyers in November after selling in the previous two months to the extent that people thought they had almost left the country. The reasons are both domestic and international, as I alluded to earlier. Internationally, of course, there is expectation of lower interest rates, which means capital is flowing out from there into more potentially rewarding markets like India. Domestically, of course, there is an expectation of political continuity. And there are strong flows into mutual funds in India from Indian investors. A Jefferies analyst note dated December 15, quoted by the Economic Times, says that India's economic outlook is robust, with a close to 7% multi-year gross domestic product growth likely, with earnings growth of close to 15% for Nifty 50 listed companies in fiscal 24-25. In general, foreign portfolio investments for the 2023-24 year. So far, are on course to be the highest since 2021. Oil supplies could face threats. Our energy segment is up next, supported by the India Energy Week. Oil rose following first weekly gain since late October as major shipping lines suspended transit through the Red Sea into the Suez Canal. Global benchmark Brent has now traded near seventy-seven dollars a barrel after gaining very marginally to snap a seven-week streak of declines. Bloomberg reported, 
adding that the Egypt's Suez Canal Authority said it's closely following tensions in the Red Sea after the United States said it shot down 14 drones launched from the Iran-backed Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. Major shippers, MSC Mediterranean Shipping Company and CMA CGM SA, Maersk and Hapag Lloyd have all said that they will not be sending their vessels through the choke point in the face of rising threats, while Maersk tanker said it would insist its vessels have the option to avoid the route. Houthi militants have been attacking more and more merchant ships in the Red Sea, especially vessels they claim are connected to Israel in response to the war in Gaza. Before I come to the impact on shipping, crude has lost about 20% from its high in late September and is down 10% for 2023. So even if things have risen a little bit, it's still over the longer term. While Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries plus members have been threatening to cut output to keep prices high, there does not seem to be or has been limited belief on how much of that threat would be actually carried out. Meanwhile, US shale supply of crude oil, that is, has beaten analyst expectations. Bloomberg is reporting, and this is quite interesting, that Goldman Sachs, which usually pitches for higher oil prices, has cut its forecast range for Brent in 2024 by $10 to $70 to $90 a barrel. And this report came on December 17th. And this also comes at the same time that it boosted its US oil supply growth to about 0.9 million barrels a day from about 0.5 million barrels a day. So the United States is going to be actively contributing to petroleum or oil or crude supply. The energy segment was brought to you by India Energy Week starting February 6th next year. Details at www.indiaenergyweek.com. Meanwhile, what should India make of these tensions around the Suez Canal? I reached out to Rakesh Singh, Managing Director of A3 Shipping and Secretary of the ICC Shipping Association, and I began by asking him about the impact of global... I reached out to Rakesh Singh, Managing Director of A3 Shipping and Secretary of ICC Shipping Association, and I began by asking about, first, the impact on global trade with the major lines like Hapag Lloyd and Maersk suspending movement, and then on India. About 12% of the global trade passes through Suez Canal and that amounts to about $9 billion a day. The last mishap that we had vis-a-vis Suez Canal when the given was uh, grounded in the canal. So obviously that was not a war-related situation, but then it did block the canal and I presume the losses are still being calculated, but it has gone up to $50 billion just because of the blockade of the canal. So that shows the vital importance of the canal. And in a big container operators like MSC, CB, MAC, MAC, GM, and Marx and Hapagloid have all said they'll be stopping. And that would be fatal, particularly for the trade between, let's say, Indian subcontinent, Gulf, and China, Japan, Southeast Asia, and Europe and USA, and mostly Europe. There are two victims of this situation and first situation which is developed. One is a direct hit that will be taken by the Egypt itself as a country. Their revenue, you know, the canal is not going to be used, then revenue is going to be blocked. And then there are some major ports in uh, Red Sea itself like Jeddah. That's a very big port of Saudi Arabia. So the ship practically would not be calling that port. So those are the direct victims of this situation that has developed. And then, of course, see the entire Asian and European trade. And particularly in terms of container trade, if I'm not mistaken, 30% of the global container trade runs through the canal. So this is going to be very serious because 
the alternate is 3,900 nautical miles, you know, more via Cape Town. If these ships are forced to take the route via Cape Town, South Africa, then it adds almost, as I said, close to 4,000 nautical miles. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a quantum jump, you know, close to 20-25% also in the freight, particularly, as I said, the trade between Asia and Europe. Because that's where they're lost. There's this distance which I gave you is between if a ship is going from India to Europe, by going via Cape Town, it adds about 3,900 nautical miles. So the two figures that you've given me, one is that the Suez Canal represents about 12% of global trade. It represents 30% of global container trade. And the two are obviously slightly different. Now, what percentage or proportion of Indian goods would go through this, do typically go through the Suez Canal? When I say goods, I mean exports and equally imports, which we are also obviously equally affected by. As I said, if you like to call it by a fault line that connects India and Europe through Suez Canal. So we are direct in the line of the fire as far as the trade is concerned or the transit of goods are concerned. I have roughly figure, which I think about a couple of years back, that was India's trade through, which is export-import. Both merchandise trade is about $200 billion through Suez Canal per year. What we now see is that India's global exim trade, as we like to call it, it's close to $800 billion. So you're looking at 25% of India's trade, roughly, global trade. So that's one thing. But more important, India's manufactured and high-value goods, which are largely containerized, you know, machineries, plants, equipments, software, hardware-related equipment, uh, are mostly exported to Europe and USA through Suez Canal. So that's where we probably are going to be you know, becoming less competitive in long run if this... Uh, these attacks continue. So that's going to be an immediate impact of it. And then we see how the situation unfolds as far as India is concerned. Right. It's a little early to call that. So you said cost of transporting those additional 4,000 nautical miles is roughly to 20 to 25%. That's one. Second is, is, of course, to do with time. What's the time? How much longer would it take for the same ship now to go around, apart from the cost? I'm taking the worst case scenario. So the worst case scenario, as I said, is India, Europe, or Southeast Asia, Europe. As far as USA is concerned, because you have longer distance, so in terms of percentage, the deviation is you know lesser. But here, because of this India, Europe, which is 3,900 nautical miles, and a vessel is doing about, say, 500 nautical miles a day on an average container vessel, roughly. So you have a good calculation back of the left, seven to eight days, one side, that is one side. Coming to the cost now, you said about 20-25% more. If the overall container freight rates or rather sea freight rates have been falling for some time now, how would that, assuming let's say worst case ships are forced to divert and costs go up, how would it look in the context of where shipping or freight rates are presently across the world or in the region? Under normal circumstances, the freight rates particularly, I would have their variations or a cycle of going up and down depending on various factors, which is very difficult to summarize in a short duration right now. But here, the question is that the trade cannot stop. The trade has to continue. It's just that it has to take a longer route, which is at seven to eight days, one direction. So, end of the day, the ship owners are going to incur huge cost because a per day of operating cost of a vessel, and especially a decent size, when I say about 15,000 TU container vessel, in terms of fuel alone, if you look at it, it's about 60 to 70 tons of fuel a day. And then the operating cost. So 
for them to even break even, you know, that cost needs to be added. So it's very difficult to compare the freight fluctuations under normal circumstances and as it is unfolding now. Right. So in your experience, I mean, considering that we may have seen problems in this area in the past, and because the whole world is focused on keeping this passage free and, you know, moving along, including, of course, free from violence, what's your sense on normalcy returning? I mean, that's something, you know, I'm not a security expert, but just before speaking to you, I was looking at the chart which somebody shared with me, the dates and the locations and the names of the vessel that have been hit since some, I think, third week or fourth week of November. And it is all dotted all over Red Sea. The thing is that, I know, Somalia pirates attacked, we know that zone very well. It could be easily demarcated because we knew the concentrations of pirate in area. Here I am seeing the entire length of Suez Canal because the offense that is being you know, used is besides the range. The ranges are too far. I don't know what ranges they have, but I looked at northern middle part of Suez Canal and hit. Southern part is hit. So I don't know who the international bodies or people who are involved in it or people who are subverting it who are not in the picture through IMO, probably United Nations or a larger body in the European Union or USA will have to take a call. And this is very uncontrolled aggression. And the range of it is, the trial probably could a thousand miles from where it is being fired. So there's a counter-offensive looks, may not be able to give us the immediate result. You know? Right. Rakesh, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. The rupee, meanwhile, and back home continues to rule relatively strong, though it dropped back below 83 rupees after the early battle during yesterday's trading day. It settled at 83 rupees and 5 paise after opening stronger at 82 rupees and 97 paise. These differences might seem small, but they are encouraging to those who are betting on a stronger rupee. Last week, the prognosis was looking much weaker, by the way, and it might still go there. But the jump in foreign portfolio flows is clearly helping and possibly to some extent halting a steady slide of the rupee against the dollar. Sovereign gold bonds, here we come. Gold prices have been rising up almost 13% this year, beating most asset classes and coming close to the stock markets were it not for what is being now referred to as the Santa Claus rally of last month. Should you be investing in gold then? If so, should you be doing it for capital appreciation or a hedge against all things going wrong, as people have done perhaps for centuries? The government's sovereign gold bond scheme, Series 3, for the fiscal year 23-24 opened for subscription yesterday, that's December 18, and will close on December 22. The Reserve Bank of India has fixed the issue price at 6,199 per gram. So the questions are twofold. One, where does gold fit today in an asset portfolio allocation after all this appreciation in a portfolio and where does gold fit in general and what is the prognosis for the yellow metal. I reached out to veteran financial advisor P.V. Subramaniam, CEO of Supramoney.com and I began by asking him how he was looking at gold right now. There are two things. One is gold because gold is attractive. Second, gold because your equities have run far ahead of what you thought it will happen. When you look at some of your equity funds, which have given you 35% and 38%, you realize that this is not going to sustain. Now, if you have debt, maybe you remove some of it and repay some part of your debt. If you don't have debt, then the question is when you say you should remove some money, people say, Nikal ke kya karu? Why should I remove money? Then the logic is okay, buy gold. 
so more because gold not just because gold is attractive but because equities have run ahead of time so i say this even for countries you can see them buying gold now question is are they buying gold or are they selling the dollar so you don't know why they are buying gold so yes gold because some equities which you hold have run too far ahead of time so some gold yes so and when you say some gold in a normal portfolio how are you balancing it see it's a question of what level of gold are you comfortable with some people are comfortable with 5% gold and some people are comfortable with 10% gold beyond that it does not make too much sense but having said that in the last 3 4 years uh, your uh, sgb has given you better returns than even a debt fund because today if you put money in a debt fund it is uh, it is taxed right so every rupee coming out of that is going to become part of your current income that's not so attractive so maybe therefore you could increase some gold in your portfolio but again having said that a lot of money is now going into multi asset fund so if you are putting a lot of money in multi asset remember 10% of that money is also going into gold so if you are putting money in multi asset fund to that extent you need to buy less gold right and therefore you are also saying that even for that to the extent that we are putting in 10% is it a hedge or is it more of an appreciation capital appreciation play at this level actually both have happened largely you will hear a lot of media noise like oh, it's a end of the world kind of situation just imagine a situation in 2024 if narendra modi does not get 270 seats or something like that we will say oh god this country is finished and things like that and that's the time when gold could go up so more such panic situations arise actually during a panic situation if you can sit calm there is nothing too bad but one advantage of having assets like etf or sovereign gold bond is you will at least sell it jewelry is something which you will never sell so yes having some money in liquid assets like etf or sgb makes sense if gold goes up a lot for whatever reason the dollar is weakening the euro is weakening anything like that the gold goes up maybe you could sell and book some profits also in between let's say the physical asset and virtual asset for lack of any other term like the sovereign gold bond what is your preference look gold has helped people during 1947 partition and even during the kuwait war of course after the kuwait war people could go back and retrieve their assets but after partition they couldn't go back so if you think there should be some physical gold then it should be at home right somebody is come knocking on the door you have to take some assets and run it has to be your gold how many of us have the guts to keep gold at home even if we have gold in form of jewelry it will be in our banks so are we going to be able to retrieve that be able to take it i don't know so gold as a safety tool you need to have physical gold otherwise electronic gold makes more sense right subramaniam thank you so much for joining me my pleasure strong indian aviation and ryan airs bonus The Indian aviation industry is set for a strong quarter 3 that's the current quarter on the basis of rising passenger load factors thanks in turn to of course a 100 plus aircraft being grounded across the country so a report from ICICI security says the combination of passenger load factors trending higher than 85% and falling crude is setting the stage for a strong quarter 3 for Indian airlines and of course a daily domestic passenger count of more than 440000 passengers in a day seen in december this year and this month 
till date is helping most airline passenger loads are now close to or just over 90% which is of course as i can see as happy as happy times go elsewhere Ryanair Holdings PLC that's in the United Kingdom CEO Michael O'Leary could secure a 100 million pound bonus if the low cost airlines shares keep rising the financial times has reported according to a 2019 bonus plan O'Leary stands to earn share options valued at about 100 million pounds if the Irish company's shares maintain a price of 21 euros for 28 consecutive days the company's shares have gained 50% this year though have yet to reach that critical level now back home indigo with a lion share of the indian market at around 61% is also seeing and has seen a solid run on the bosses ryanair is low cost and so is indigo there is some takeaway in all of this obviously including for those who run these airlines whether they take bonuses or do not the magnificent 7 Big tech stocks reclaimed their position as the market's leader this year. Just how far ahead of the pack have they run? The Wall Street Journal says that collectively the stocks known as the Magnificent 7, that's Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Nvidia, Tesla and Meta platforms have jumped 75% in 2023, leaving the other four 93 companies in the Standard & Poor's 500 in their dust. And those by the way have risen a more modest 12%, while the index as a whole is up 23%. So the magnificent 7 stocks have swelled to represent about 30% of the S&P's 500's market value according to Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research which apparently is approaching the highest ever share for any 7 stocks. The influence of the big tech stocks is massive on a global scale. The MSCI All Country World Index, a benchmark that apparently covers about 85% of the global investable equity market, the combined weighting of this magnificent 7 is larger. then all the stocks from Japan, France, China and the United Kingdom. Of course the problem is that when just a few stocks are responsible for most of the market's gains, they become vulnerable to a downturn if a few heavyweights fall like it happened last year. The Magnificent 7 finished 2022 down 40%, losing about 4.7 trillion dollars in combined market value, while the remaining stocks in the S&P 500 dropped only 12%, says the Wall Street Journal. but now it's obviously turned again so on that happy note about tides turning and the year coming to an end have a great day ahead that was the core report with me govindraj athiraj do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core you can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in do also track us on linkedin where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant including of course india's vibrant manufacturing sector so write to us at feedback@thecore.in at and thank you once again for listening <laughs>